We are in the series on David. Started last week, and in my research this week, I, I came across something I found quite, uh, quite intriguing that I think actually will uh, really fit in with uh, the direction of the talk this morning. I wanted to share that with you, and it's that scientists have discovered distinct differences in how lions and tigers use their roars and their growls and make their noises. Lions are stealth hunters, and they hunt in packs. And so they hide behind grass and they're in the plains and they will sneak up on an animal. They'll be really quiet and um, they can rush out and they can spring and surround an animal and take down an animal. And um, they rarely will roar in a hunting situation because they're trying to really preserve and protect their level of stealth and the surprise and the speed of their attack. Uh, In fact, lions, they mainly will use their roars for establishing social order and dominance and things within their own pack. But um, tigers are very different in how they use their roars. They, they hunt solo. And most tigers, as they hunt solo, they hunt differently than lions. They, they hunt in more covered areas, more vegetation, uh, denser uh, forested areas. And because they hunt solo and they're in the dense forested kind of cover, um, they can't move as, as quick and as fast. They don't have unobstructed line of sight. And it's noisy for them to walk through the vegetation. Sometimes they have to come out and be exposed and go around something. And sometimes they'll step on something. It's really hard for them to maintain the same level of stealth as they hunt. And so tigers actually use their roars very differently. Rather than trying to remain totally anonymous and hidden and quiet and stealth, what the tiger will do is as it gets close to its prey, it will begin to let out menacing roars. And it will actually announce to its prey that I have chosen you for my lunch and I am coming for you. Get ready, you're going to die. I am licking my chops. I am filing, I'm not in a rush, I'm getting ready. And it will begin to bellow out and to let menacing roars. In fact, they love to do it where there are reflective surfaces. And they say that it will, it will echo and reverberate and it will sound larger than it really is. It will sound more menacing. It's harder for the prey to figure out where is it coming from, how many of them are, and what it does is it all combines into one feeling. When a tiger is going for its prey in forested areas, it's not gonna run and flee like the lion's prey in the safari grasslands. When a tiger is going for its prey, what it will do is it will freeze up and it is paralyzed in fear. And it will actually, it'll kind of try to blend in and hide in with the vegetation and it'll just be locked down and it'll be frozen in fear. And the more a tiger roars over its prey, the more locked down and paralyzed its prey becomes and the tiger comes in for a quick and easy Subway sandwich lunch. And fear has a similar effect on our lives. In fact, I I found that little story as I was doing research on what are the effects of fear in us, and it was the study that came out that, and and, and we all face fear at different levels, at different times in our life, and sometimes fear can sneak in. We're not expecting it. We're not ready for it. We don't, all of a sudden, it's there, and it's ugly, and it's big, and it's hairy, and and it's in our life. Um, The medical community has well documented the debilitating effects 
that fear has on our lives. And in fact, in our culture, there's no shortage of things to be afraid of. We live in a world and in a culture which perpetuates fear. Fear mongering, fear motivation, trying to make people feel afraid, insecure. That's our culture. And when fear gets a hold of our heart, it paralyzes us. And we all experience, there are different kinds of fear that that we get. Um, One kind of fear I'll call chronic fear or maybe clinical fear. Chronic fear, uh, anxiety disorders are some of the, the leading reasons that people seek help from clinical counselors and clinical caregivers. Fear and its cousins, stress and worry and anxiety and all these things, these are, these are linked together in how they impact our physical bodies. They, they are linked together in how they alter the course of our life, our relationships, our ability to have trusting, open relationships with others and, and, and our sense of security and identity in the world. And, and, and it becomes a tumultuous all around, all mixed up. And, and fear and worry and anxiety gets in and it motivates and it spins us all around. And chronic fear can result in weakened immune systems and gastrointestinal problems. Long-term fear, living with fear, it, it, it impacts our ability to have critical thinking skills and constructive decision-making. Ongoing struggles with anxiety are linked to chronic fatigue, clinical depression, and an inability to regulate our emotions. And you see, when fear grips our heart, it, it debilitates us. And if you're here today and these are actually some of the things that you're wrestling with, my intent is to encourage you that there's hope to feeling better and there's hope to finding freedom. And there is a stigma in our culture. There's a stigma in the church, in the Christian world. When it comes to areas of uh, mental and emotional health and finding support. And I would say that as a, as a church and as a community and as, as leaders that we have found it makes a tremendous difference in many people. And we would advocate people finding good mental and emotional support, especially if you find a Christian counselor. There's, there's, it's, it's, it's not always just it's a spiritual thing or it's this thing. or it's, We are complex people. Everything becomes overlapping and wrapped together. And the gift of finding a good patient, loving, caring, Christian therapist, counselor, person can make a big difference in helping us kind of unravel and walk through these things. And there can be spiritual components. There can be spiritual overlays. And I don't want to provide, just trivialize something and provide a one-size-fits-all or an oversimplified solution to a complex situation. I simply want to encourage you today that you're not alone and there's hope to overcoming clinical fear and anxiety. People learn to live victoriously with those things every day. Uh, Another area of fear or another type or level of fear that we experience is what I'll call assumed fear. Assumed fears are those things that we let get in the way of living our life to the full. And, and, And often in the end, we discover that the roar is much worse than the bite. We've all heard those anecdotal statistics that like 90% of what we worry about doesn't actually happen or come true, and the other 10% that does is beyond our power and ability to change anyways, so worrying doesn't actually impact or make a difference. I'm reminded of Luke 12, 25, and Jesus says, who of you by worrying 
can add a single hour to your life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And I think what Jesus is really saying is that worry and fear, they will come in and they will get strong and they will get down in our heart and they will rob us of the chance of experiencing life and taking risk and having faith and moving forward. Fear grips us. It holds us down. Every great thing that you and I have ever accomplished, every great experience we've had has an element of faith and risk. We have to push through fear. Every great thing. At, at, at one moment, Rhett had to get down on his knee and say to Shona, I love you. Would you have, can I have your hand in marriage? Would you have me as your husband? That's a risky thing, right? Every good thing that we get in life takes a level of putting ourselves out there and risk and facing a little bit of the fear and taking the chance. Then I wonder how many things do we miss out on because we play it safe. One of the first things I remember uh, being a parent, we started our little family when we lived in Langley. And uh, we lived in the community of Walnut Grove in a townhouse right across the street from the community center, from the rec center. And uh, they had a great pool, wave pool, and uh, water slides, and used to take the kids over there. And one day when my oldest daughter, Caden, was a little bit over two, she decided that she was big enough to finally go down the water slide. I thought, well, that's awesome. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it, babe. Let's go. And so we, up the stairs we went. And uh, as we were walking up the stairs, getting higher and higher, I could feel her hesitation begin to rise and her, her level of fear and hesitancy. And she got slower. Every step was a little slower. She was kind of holding onto the side a little, you know, and, and it got echoey. The, the higher we got up in the building and the, the more the ceiling came around, you could hear the noise and and it was really high. And we got to the top, and I could tell she was afraid by the dark purple color of the edge of my fingers as she was squeezing my hand as a two-year-old with incredible strength and might. And um, I sat down at the top of the slide, you know, and you, right where the water's going in, there's that little, little hot tub there at the top, and, and I had my, my, my feet hanging over the edge into where the water's coming in, and the the, 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 the water slide was a tube. So there's water coming in the top and the bottom, and it is roaring, it is loud. And it just goes into darkness. It's just an abyss, it's just, a, it's just gone, it's just dark, it just drops. There is no way she was going in. I reached around behind to get her and she was crying and shaking and no daddy, no daddy, I'm not, I can't. And, uh, and I, I, as a loving, caring, patient <laughs> father who loves my kids dearly and wants the best for them. And I, 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 I looked at the lifeguard and I said, she'll be fine. And I grabbed her and put her on my lap. <laughs> and I pushed off and away we went and I was holding her. And let me tell you, you think a two-year-old can scream loud, try doing it in a water slide that's totally in cover. It was like, it was bone chilling. And the whole water park stopped, wondering what was happening. And she dug in above my knees with claw marks, like talons, it just, and she screamed the whole way down. 
And we went poof, around the last corner, you know, we always go up and come back down, and the long tube is like emptying out, and, and the light hits you, and all you can see is water and rapids and the pool, and she screamed even louder, and she dug in even more, and I held on to her, and I said, honey, just hold your breath, I've got you, it'll be fine, and poof, out we went, into the water, and I lifted her up out of the water with bleeding knees, and I... And she says, wee, daddy, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. That was amazing. Let's go. Woohoo, woohoo, waving at mom. And away she went up the slide again. And since that day, I discovered something as a parent, that there is a fine line that you have to walk to pushing your kids and encouraging your kids to step into their fear and lean into their fear because there's so much more life on the other side. And you know, if we just raise our kids and we live our lives and we're just always about safe and never stepping in and never going over that line, we miss so much. And we do it because life is bigger. Life is better. They're more confident they're more secure. They have a better identity. They believe in themselves. It helps them. They experience so much more. And it's no different for us. The reality is you and I are not that much different from Caden sitting down at the edge of a water slide freaking out. And we say, what's the big deal? But we do it all the time. We let fear paralyze us, and we listen to the roar, and we believe the roar is a terrible thing, and the bite must be that much, and we just, we're not going to do it. And fear prevents us from living in the moment. And so often the roar of the tiger is worse than its bite, and we just have to push through. Another is, um, kind of fear is, I'm going to call legitimate fear. It's not to say that the, the other fears are not legitimate, but Perhaps a better way is to say it's significant fears, fears that, that really are perhaps justified. They, this, is a, this is a serious thing that we're facing, situations in life that are really hard and difficult. It's when we, we know that there's no easy way through it or around it or over it on our own. It's when our spouse tells us they want to separate, when we find out our boyfriend was cheating on us, when we get bad news from the doctor, when the weight of debt is so crushing we can't make it by on the minimum payments every month and there's no way out, when we see our child making bad decisions that have long-term far-reaching consequences, we all know what it's like to face something we can't see our way out of. I've had people describe that kind of fear as being suffocating. When the weight of what we're up against begins to settle in and we realize it's beyond our ability to fix or control the situation. And some of the things that we face are legitimately scary. They're difficult situations. And there is no easy way around, through, or over it. And I wanna encourage you today that we know the one who knows the way? And his promise is to walk with us every step. 
We believe in Jesus, the incarnate God, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus who is with us. In 2 Samuel, or sorry, 1 Samuel 17, which is the series on David that we're, we're going through, in 1 Samuel 17, the, the Israelites are facing such a fear and such a, 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 such a situation. In the story, the vast Philistine army is encamped on one mountainside with a valley in between, and on the other mountainside are the Israelites, the, the, the whole army of Israel. And 1 Samuel 17, 4, 11 says this. I'm gonna read in the message because it translates it into some modern measurements and descriptions and helps us easier to understand rather than cubits and things like that. It says, a giant, nearly 10 feet tall, stepped out from the Philistine line to the open. He was Goliath from Gath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was dressed in armor, 126 pounds of it. He wore bronze shin guards and carried a bronze sword. His spear was like a fence rail. The spear tip alone weighed over 15 pounds. His shield bearer walked ahead of him and Goliath stood there and called out to the Israelite troops, why bother using your whole army? Am I not Philistine enough for you? And you're all committed to Saul, aren't you? So pick your best fighter and pit him against me. And if he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you'll all become our slaves and serve us. I challenge the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. Now the description of Goliath, of this warrior, is very important to the narrative. Because the description that Samuel is giving us, what we hear in this this soldier's might, his stance and his weapons and his attitude and his moxie and everything that he's got is that this is an impossible enemy. There is no conceivable way out for the Israel army. No one man can stand against him. No group of men can stand against this mighty warrior. And when we get to the story, the armies have been camping out and getting ready for battle every day for 40 days. So imagine this. Imagine how demoralizing it is to be an Israelite soldier camped out. You get out of your tent. You eat some breakfast with the boys. You put on your armor, get your sword, walk out to the edge of the battlefield, and this 10-foot menacing giant gets up and starts spitting and mocking and laughing. And he calls down your God and he mocks you and he calls you weak and he begins to just demoralize you for 40 days every day. At the end of the day, they go home, take their gear off, get into their tents. The next day they get up and they come back and they do the same thing. 40 days this is going on. And this giant... This giant is roaring over Israel like a tiger roars over its prey. He has them gripped in fear. In fact, it says that every day they go to line up and he begins to trash talk them and mock their God and talk down to them and fear and intimidation washes over them and they run and they hide. He has them paralyzed in fear. He is roaring over them like a lion like a tiger. And every day, they feel smaller and smaller, more and more defeated. 
without even stepping into the battlefield. But something remarkable happens for the Israelites. God makes a way out for them where there seems to be no way. In 1 Samuel 17, 41, from the message, it says this. As a Philistine paced back and forth, his shield bearer in front of him, he noticed David. He took one look down on him and sneered. A mere youngster, apple-cheeked and peach-fuzzed. The Philistine ridiculed David. Am I a dog that you come after me with a stick? And he cursed him by his gods. Come on, said the Philistine, I'll make roadkill of you for the buzzards. I'll turn you into a tasty morsel for field mice. This guy knows how to be intimidating. He knows how to roar. And David answered, you come at me with sword and spear and battle axe. I come at you in the name of God of the angel armies, the God of Israel's troops whom you curse and mock. This very day God is handing you over to me. I'm about to kill you, cut off your head and serve up your body and the bodies of your Philistine buddies to the crows and coyotes. The whole earth will know that there's an extraordinary God in Israel and everyone gathered here will learn that God doesn't save by means of sword or spear. The battle belongs to God. He's handing you to us on a platter. Well, that roused the Philistine and he started toward David and he took off from the front line running towards the Philistine. And David reached into his pocket for a stone and he slung it and he hit hard the Philistine in the forehead, embedding the stone deeply. The Philistine crashed down in the dirt and that's how David beat the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He hit him and killed him, no sword for David. Then David ran up to the Philistine and he stood over him and he pulled the giant's sword from its sheath and he finished the job by cutting off his head. And when the Philistines saw the great champion was dead, they scattered, running for their lives. I should have mentioned that today's sermon was a little bit PG, uh, with some cutting off of heads and things like that. It's a great account. It's a great translation to give us a picture of what was happening in the battlefield. And you see, the popular way to understand the story is to read this with our eyes and insert ourselves as David. We like to be the hero, full of bravery and courage. That's the way we normally read the story. But if we're honest, I wonder if we're not really that brave. And we're more like one of the other Israelites, paralyzed in fear, hiding behind the rocks, hoping that Goliath doesn't actually find us and look at us and lock eyes with us. Is it possible the story of David and Goliath is not so much about us being David, the mighty warrior who saves the day and everybody goes free. And it's more about God being faithful and making a way out of an impossible situation for his children. I'm gonna get the band to come and we're gonna get ready to close, but, but just think about this idea. Think about David. When he steps up, as the only one willing to fight the giant, the soldiers, his own soldiers, laugh at him. He wears no armor because he's not a trained soldier. Even Goliath recognizes he's not a real man, he's not a real soldier, and he mocks David. David is as unlikely a hero as they come. 
When the Israelites were hiding behind the rocks, listening to the giant roar over them, when they were gripped with fear and unable to face it on their own, God sent this unlikely hero named David. And I wonder if you can see the parallel between David showing up after 40 days and Jesus showing up. Isaiah 53, 2 says, my servant, this is speaking of Jesus as an Old Testament prophecy, says, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot. Like a root in dry ground, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. You see, David is actually a foreshadow of Jesus. God's people are stuck in an impossible situation and they cannot get out of it. And an unlikely hero shows up and makes a way. And you and I as people, we are stuck in an impossible situation. We cannot make our own peace with God. We cannot become good enough to earn God's love or approval. Jesus is an unlikely hero for us, for our lives, for the things we face, for our sin, for our brokenness, for the mess of our world. Jesus is our unlikely hero. And just as God used David to make a way where there is no way, he has already given us Jesus to make a way where there is no way in our life. The Jews rejected Jesus. The Romans dismissed him. The devil underestimated him. And Jesus faced the formidable enemy of sin and the curse of death and the brokenness of life to win a battle that we cannot win on our own. And Jesus has overcome every giant. And when there is a giant roaring over your life, if you look out the corner of your eye, you're going to see Jesus running out. Say, I got this. If there's one person that's not afraid, if there's one person that's not intimidated, it's Jesus. And he is taking it for us. And if you're facing a giant today, if you're facing something that you don't know how to get around or over or through, take heart. Would you hear these two things? Would you hear this this morning? You don't have to fight that thing on your own strength. Jesus is already running out into the battlefield for you. He's already done it. And you don't have to go through it alone. Jesus is right here with you, right in the midst of it all. And as hard as it is to face that thing, you can have courage because you don't have to do it alone and you don't have to do it in your own strength. Jesus promises to be with you. You know what I love about Jesus? The scripture says that his love, his perfect love, drives out fear. And what that does is that puts us in a place that when we're hiding behind the rock, afraid because the giant and the enemy is roaring over us, what we do in that moment 
is we welcome the perfect love of Jesus into our life. Say, Jesus, I just need you. Would you just come? I can't do this on my own. I can't face this on my own. I can't get through this thing. I can't get around it. I can't take it down. I can't do it on my own. Jesus, would you come? And when you just stop and you just invite Jesus and you just welcome his presence into your life, when the presence of Jesus washes into your heart, it begins to push out fear and darkness. The two will not coexist. If you're overrun with the fear of the enemy, if the enemy is roaring over you and invoking fear in you and paralyzing you in fear, welcome the presence of Jesus into your life and into your heart. And it will drive out that fear. I wonder if we can just pray in this moment. We just kind of sit with our our eyes closed and just in a reflective moment of prayer. I wonder how many would know that there is a giant roaring over their life right now and fear is paralyzing you and it's growing and creeping up in you and you feel that level of anxiety you feel that level of understanding that you are beyond it's above you it's it's you don't know what to do but you would say this morning Jesus I just invite your presence I need your presence I welcome your presence into this scenario and this situation and would you just come and sit with me so when that tiger roars over me I am not afraid I wonder how many would say that's me this morning maybe just slip your hand up say that's me this morning there's an enemy there's a giant roaring over me and perhaps this morning you are with us and you have never made a step or a commitment or opened your heart to begin a faith belief and understanding of Jesus we would call that welcoming, inviting Jesus into your life. Identifying him as God and as who you would believe in and you would want to build your life upon. And Jesus is amazing and he's marvelous, but it begins with an action step, a response on our behalf. We, Jesus already gave his life. He already fought that giant. He already defeated sin and the enemy and death and the curse of destruction and the brokenness of life. Jesus has already he's defeated all that stuff. But we can join with him. We can join in his victory. We participate with him when we humble ourselves and say, I believe in you. It's not about me. Forgive me. And we welcome him in and we make room in our heart to believe and have faith in him. And I wonder this morning, as we're just in this moment of prayer and we're just reflecting. I wonder this morning how many would say, I haven't done that yet, but I want to. I want to respond and open the door of my life and my heart to Jesus and make him my God. How many would say, that's me this morning. I want to do that. Just hold your hand up.
So Jesus, in this sacred moment, we pray for those that lifted a hand this morning and identified and said, there's a giant in my life and he's staring me down. And I pray, God, that you would help us to know and understand that we don't have to run out there and fight everything on our own and our own strength. But we just join with you. You're already there. You've already done it. You're already leading the way. And Lord, help us. Help us, God, to stop and to welcome your presence into that broken relationship, that broken scenario. Jesus, to welcome you in to that point of need and that your presence would come and that you would chase away the darkness. You would take away the fear of the roar of the tiger over our life. And Lord, for those today that maybe responded and said they want to open their heart to you perhaps for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would be humble enough to just confess their need for you and their sin before you and that Lord you would come and your presence would come into their heart and that you would wash over them with your love and that you would just fill them with who you are and your goodness you'd renew them and restore them and you'd replace guilt and emptiness with your presence pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening today and being a part of our series as we go through the, the story of David and le learning about different things from him. I encourage you, why don't you just stand. The band is going to play one song for us and um, we're going to just sing together and then officially we'll dismiss. There's a line in the song I really love. It says, my champion's not dead, he is alive. And that is a direct declaration because the Philistines' champion died and they ran. But our champion is alive. Our champion, Jesus, is alive. And we do not need to be afraid.